I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm also your co-host, Matt Bernico. All right, we got a lot to cover in this episode, but I think we should start out a little bit light or heavy, I guess, depending on how this hits you, Matt. Um, my wife, Emily... <laughs> told me about an amazing icebreaker, and I have been using it everywhere, and I'm going to gift it uh, to all of our listeners, because uh, I think it is so good. It has not failed me yet. And I want to ask it to you, Matt. Um, the icebreaker question is this. Jesus Christ, you know him, you love him. His, uh, You do have to start the question this way. Uh, Jesus Christ, you, <laughs> you, you, know him, you know him, you love him. Um, he decided that his sacramental symbols for his body and blood would be bread and wine. And my question to you, Matt, is if you had to choose sacramental symbols for your body and your blood, what would they be? Okay. Um, there's some there's some wild assumptions that this is making right now, but okay. I'll <laughs> Name play it along literally then, one. <laughs> I'll play along for now, and then we'll circle back to my uh, refutation of this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so first of all, this is very easy for me. It's coffee and donuts. That's my body and blood. Oh, um, my body. <laughs> Police alert. Yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, uh, my body is already mostly donuts, and my blood is very <laughs> caffeinated, so I think that this is not much of a, uh, you know, if I want to take that literal sort of interpretation of this whole thing, I think mm -hmm. that's it. Dean, what, what are yours? Okay, well, I'm just imagining, like, people are lined up at mass to get my good body and my great blood, and um, let's see, I think the first taste should be a good slice of pizza. Uh, and you do have to eat it all at the front of the wine, and it takes a long time, but that's it's worth it. It's my body. I don't know. <laughs> my body, my choice. Um, and, then, and then my blood, I feel like, has to be just like a like a, a shot of lemon juice, just to give you a little bit of that sour. Oh, why? Um, a real big pucker. I think everyone's gonna get a kick out of it. Um, it's gonna it's gonna make for a good time at church. And I feel like you need a little sense of humor. And also, I'm a little sour myself, so it feels reflective. Um, well, um, because uh, because of the Eucharist, you can just you can just take the host, and you don't have to drink from the big cup of lemon juice lemon juice i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take the slice of pizza i think and, and head back to my seat yeah i mean you can do that you'll only get my body and that's gonna leave you pretty dry but that's up to you yeah yep that makes sense um here's the bigger question though um this icebreaker presupposes that jesus chose those things because he liked them right like so is that the assumption that you're making with this, like that Jesus chose bread and wine because he liked them? So like, you're thinking he picked foods. them because it was a last minute decision. It was what was right in front of him. That's what you're suggesting. <laughs> well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what the icebreaker assumes because it's saying, what would you pick? Were you Jesus? And I right. picked, you know, a coffee and a donut or whatever. Right. So the icebreaker assumes that Jesus likes <laughs> Sure. <laughs> he likes yeah, the big he, cup he of wine stuff. and the wafer. He loves those things. Sure, sure. I mean, he's multiplying them all the time. But uh, I guess the better question would have to be, what would your last supper be? But that sounds uh, that sounds too intense for an icebreaker. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, thanks. No, thanks at all. Okay, we on this podcast, now you know, uh, Matt's a big donut and coffee man and i i had a donut this morning and it was out of this world good and it is now my body if you think about it it's true your body will turn a lot of it into more of your body um and it'll turn some of it into yucky stuff 
Yeah, you get that right out of your body. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But we're not talking about that, surprisingly, for the next hour. We're not talking about the metaphysical transubstantiation of our favorite foods into um, (laughs) our body and blood, thank God, uh, because um, I'm sure my local bishop has enough to worry about when he hears my my name anymore. Um, Instead, on this podcast, uh, we're going to talk about something else that I think is really interesting, uh, development. It's a thing that I have to think about kind of a lot. For my job and also for fun. I've been reading a ton about it, working in uh, development stuff for a while, and uh, I think it fits really well. It's an overdue conversation on this podcast. We like to talk about liberation, theology, Marxism, we love it, and guess what? It's all part of this conversation too, but in the context of Latin America and some other countries that you might think of as being kind of on the periphery of global capitalism, um, development is really interesting because it's an idea that sort of gets like used and abused and it's something worth talking about for that reason to try to think through how it kind of relates to these other things that we like to talk about liberation theology Marxism etc but also how it maybe has like an uneasy relationship to those things as well um, when people talk about countries like what you could call underdeveloped countries or what what you could call, but maybe shouldn't call underdeveloped countries, <laughs> maybe right. uh, Cuba or Haiti, for example. Um, sometimes they use phrases like developing countries, right? Or like I said, underdeveloped countries. Um, developing countries can mean a few different things. A lot of times people use the phrase to just be basically synonymous with poor country um, or like a backwards country. But in a more exact sense, it might mean a country who has an economy that isn't fully integrated into the global capitalist economy. They could mean a country that doesn't enjoy the same kinds of consumptive levels as maybe so-called developed countries. Um, So economically speaking, it has to do really with the kind of um, way in which those countries have their economies compared to the economies of so-called developed countries. So it's a lot of tricky stuff going on. Matt, uh, what do you think about development? Yeah, you know, it's a word that I've not really thought that hard about, I think, in my life. So this has been a great intervention into it, uh, kind of playing this episode and figuring out what what we're talking about. Um, But I I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the phrase developing countries or underdeveloped country is such as like just a term that people throw around kind of like willy-nilly uh, to mean nothing exact, but it does have sort of a specific meaning. I think that's great to uh, parse that out. There is kind of like a tricky assumption with the phrase development or developing country or whatever, right? Like what are those countries developing towards <laughs> when we ask that question or when we say something is underdeveloped or developing? Um, for example, like when a body like the United Nations, they talk about uh, development. They're talking about how connecting one of those developing countries uh, better to capitalism might develop it further and to pull it out of poverty, right? I mean, that's at least one um, maybe high-minded way of talking about it or like well-meaning, but ultimately, you know, bad way of talking about it. <laughs> but the assumption there, I think, is is pretty flawed from the start, right? Because, uh, you know, the capitalists want to believe that uh, a, a market will produce um, economic growth and it will pull people out of, pro- out of poverty, right? That's the that's the hope of capitalists. Um, it's pretty hollow, though, because it's basically not true. Capitalism produces economic development and the growth of, like, the GDP, the gro- gross domestic product. But because of the exploitative nature of capitalism, it doesn't really reduce poverty for anyone but the capitalist class. So, I mean, you know, maybe it'll pull like a handful of people out of poverty or it or it won't do that at all. And it'll concentrate wealth in, into the hands of like a national bourgeoisie or like, you know, a global corporation that definitely does not care about reducing poverty in, in a, uh, a, a so-called developing country. The opposite even. <laughs> yeah, they might want to make poverty a little bit worse if they could. Um, so th- I think that's an important piece, right? Development has these um, has this sort of edge to it where it has an ethical demand or it has a, a some kind of like um, ethical aspect, but it's one that's like I think always unrealized uh, in capitalism because just of the way that capitalism works at its core. Um, I think that many people still think of development in that particular register, though, of it having like this ethical edge to it Mm -hmm. or um, talking about like, you know, how do you bring up the consumption of a particular country or how do you plug in um, subsistence production into capitalist production? But I think this um, this distinction that we're talking about here, kind of like splitting this and kind of being more critical about it is definitely a distinction that people in liberation theology talk about quite a bit. 
Um, and I think definitely flew over my head, I think, in, in the past. So, for example, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez's book, uh, A Theology of Liberation, he talks about this really early on. And I don't think I ever really caught what was happening here until very recently when I went back and read it. Uh, maybe that's because I'm a bad reader, very likely. But um, I think it's one of those phrases that maybe you don't, like, really pick up on unless someone's pointing it out to you or you, like, kind of know the context of the conversation. So um, Dean's definitely, like made me more aware of that. <laughs> That's been great. Um, so anyways, in this episode, we're going to spend some time unpacking what it is that Gutierrez and then also uh, Leonardo Boff, uh, we'll bring him in a little bit later in the episode, has to say about development and then the alternative perspective that liberation theology actually provides. Um, you know, in the end, I think what we're going to try to demonstrate is that development can't just be about like economic growth of countries. Um, that doesn't really get you anywhere, but exploitation and oppression, and uh, we don't want it. Uh, but instead, uh, I think as uh, Gutierrez argues, it has to be about liberation, um, the liberation of people from all forms of oppression and exploitation towards sort of new vistas of being a person or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that this conversation is good, though. Um, you know, we talked about monopoly capital quite a bit last week and how, you know, um, how capital kind of works within a particular country to um, develop its uh, particular hegemonic power. But here what we're going to see is... Um, how we can overturn some of those assumptions that capital hoists upon us uh, when we think about other countries that, um, you know, don't look like ours necessarily. Yeah. And I think it's important to, you were just saying, Matt, that it helps to have some of the context of something like development when you read somebody like Gutierrez. I think it's important to emphasize that because we, at least in my experience, like going through a master's program and PhD program and being around people who talk about theology on the whole, I think people have kind of, I don't know, like moved beyond that conversation in general. Like development isn't really a big piece of curricula in seminaries in the way that it might have been several decades ago. Global economic stuff is not really like front and center for most pastors, I would guess, being formed or contemporary academic theologians. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I didn't go through theology school, but it's just my impression. And I think that actually really changes the way that we read liberation theology, too, because when you read uh, Gutierrez's Theology of Liberation, he is actually putting a lot of development stuff pretty upfront because it really changes the way that he does his theology in the rest of the book. So I think it's helpful to have a minute to like parse out that context as well, just because for those of us who are into liberation theology, like it's great. It's very cool that they are talking about Jesus Christ in an interesting way, talking about salvation in interesting ways and all that kind of thing. But it's helpful to you actually understand those points better if you have kind of an understanding of like the material context out of which people like Gutierrez are like really trying to make sense of those doctrines or whatever. So anyway, I guess that's just a, a final pitch to be like, listen, if you want to know about liberation theology, you got to learn about development, <laughs> whether you like it or not. It's just a, a part of it. So we can talk about Gutierrez, but I think that based on what I was just saying, it might help to also have a, like a broader sense of that that context right like what development is um so i thought maybe we could put some of that out on the table here uh the real conversation around development in a global way has been going on for a long time capitalism has been going on for a long time too but development takes kind of like an explicit international stage in the 1950s after the second world war and there's two big reasons for it. The first is that after the war, um, there were also all these anti-colonial movements in the global south. And development was one way of trying to sort of like capture the emerging uh, countries that were throwing off their colonial chains and like integrate them into capitalism instead of losing them to a, a socialist bloc. That was like the attempt and hope. Um, it was also, though, kind of an attempt to think through how to uh, reassert U.S. hegemony. There were all these institutions set up after World War II, like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and they were looking for ways to sort of make sure that the U.S. stayed the economic leader that it had kind of emerged as during the wars. Um, but there was also kind of a left conversation around development, or more progressive maybe. Um, in the Global South, there were a handful of really interesting, like, even like Keynesian experiments in places like Brazil, uh, countries that had sort of big economies to think about and were trying to figure out like, could they organize their economies in such a way that they maybe weren't as like subservient to the needs and desires of uh, consumers in the global north? Uh, 
So lots of interesting stuff. Brazil especially is full of extremely weird experiences until uh, there was a coup in 1964. Um, lots to say about that. But all that to say, uh, in the 50s and 60s, development is really like emerging as a kind of global way of of talking about how to deal with like a new political situation, right? The U.S. is still on top, but there's all these like so-called backward or underdeveloped countries kind of trying to like come of age or whatever. That's like how they would talk about it. Um, and so development approaches were ways of sort of integrating that. There's lots of twists and turns from there. There's sort of like a liberal reform movement in the 70s that recognizes that, guess what, this isn't really working. <laughs> Capitalism is like actually increasing inequalities in certain places. Um, then you get to the 80s and there's kind of a neoliberal turn where everyone's like, let's just gut the state entirely and do these kind of huge structural adjustment programs. And that's development. You get some uh, some apologies about that later on, but not exactly in like the 90s and 2000s. So there's lots of like, you know, wild stuff happening. But when you get to somebody like Gutierrez, this book, A Theology of Liberation, it comes out in the late 60s. It's the product of Gutierrez thinking through the 60s. What I think is important is like our brains are so broken by neoliberalism. It's kind of hard to imagine people thinking about capitalism in like a more progressive way. Um, and that's also like a weird sentence to say. But uh, Gutierrez is basically trying to reject a development model that is like a more progressive model, which I think actually strengthens the thesis of his whole theology, right? Like, he's like, <laughs> even the kind of um, maybe capitalism with a human face or like well-intentioned liberal development strategies and so on, for Gutierrez, that is like not good enough. Like, he wants liberation. So anyway, just to kind of like put some of that context out there, I think it helps to sort of plot the book and plot liberation theology as a bit of a response to all that. Yeah, I think it's also a great way. I mean, the context is helpful because it demonstrates the way that liberation theology is not really just like about theology either. You know, it has um, it has its door open to talking about economics and like really figuring that out in a pretty serious way that I think is uh, I'm, I'm very interested in, at least. <laughs> I like hearing theologians talk about economics. I think that's a pretty um, <laughs> weird cross section, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, maybe too on that front, it might help to talk about some of those economic ideas floating around. So, you know, we've been talking about Brandon Sweezy and Monopoly Capital. Um, there was kind of a whole wave of uh, thinkers, sometimes called dependency theorists. There's other names too, and they kind of like evolve into different movements and, you know, take different paths and so on. But loosely, the idea is that um, there are, that capitalism is a global system and there are kind of uh, mechanisms in that system that basically force the global south to always be um, dependent on the global north and vice versa that um, the global north is kind of the center that sucks in all the value that gets produced in the periphery in the global south and this was like super popular in latin america especially there's some also some pretty important theorists in other parts of the global south you know, like uh, walter rodney's book how europe underdeveloped africa i think is like having kind of a moment right now um, which is a good thing. Uh, there's people like Samir Amin in Egypt, um, lots of other people. But in Latin America especially, there's a ton of kind of generative thinking in the 70s. And liberation theology, it's really fascinating. Like, there are kind of also maybe more or less radical versions of dependency theory. In fact, like, there are some versions, even in the Brazilian context, that are pretty capitalist still, but uh, there are a lot of left-wing or kind of Marxist versions. Um, liberation theology is like, they're all reading that stuff like as it's being published. And it is hard. Like it's not simple literature. I've been reading a ton of it and it takes kind of a lot of work. Um, so it's impressive that all these theologians just felt compelled to like teach themselves the, the sort of discourses that were happening on the left in their countries. Well, let's start from like ground zero. Is that the right word? Let's start from square one. My the metaphors are gonna kill me on this podcast. I've never square been good zero. at it. And I, squares, square zero. All right. In this particular chapter in uh, in theology of liberation, Gutierrez starts talking about like what development even is, and as it turns out, it's a hard thing to kind of give a hard and fast uh, definition to. There's some competing ideas around development, as we've already kind of said. Right. Um, he talks about in the very opening about how. Um, uh, Development is, in a sense, a kind of a negative idea, right? Because you can only think about it in terms of uh, underdevelopment, um, which is to say that, like, 
um, there's a particular frame of reference there that suggests that poor countries should always be compared with rich countries and that poor countries are always like on the way through development, you know, becoming rich countries or something like that. There's a possible end goal. Like that's even like that. Right. So in, in some ways of thinking about development uh, at the very beginning, Gutierrez starts talking about just like the, the pure, like sort of economic sense of the word. Right. Um, but there's also maybe a different way of thinking about it. Like you were talking about a few minutes ago, Dean, the um, the hard to imagine and cringeworthy idea of of uh, progressive types of capitalism, right? <laughs> a capitalism that might uh, pull people out of out of poverty rather than put them deeper into poverty. Um, and I think that's kind of where the conversation with Gutierrez starts becoming kind of interesting. So um, this I'm going to read a bit here from Gutierrez, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. In this first part of the essay, he's laying out like all of these like competing ideas about um, development and the ways that kind of fall short of, um, you know, uh, the way that other people think about it. And Gutierrez says that the deficiencies of the above mentioned view have led to another more important and more frequently held one. According to it, the, you know, the, the more frequently held view, uh, development is a total social process, which includes economic, social, political and cultural aspects. Okay. So this more expansive understanding of development here implies like a more ethical dimension of it, um, you know, that um, Gutierrez kind of locates in a type of humanism. Um, and here we're not talking about the humanism like that, like humans are good or something um, fundamentally that sometimes you get in other uh, types of literature. But it's a humanism that's about like humans have the capacity to grab their own destiny by the horns again another metaphor that um i'm gonna mess up uh to grab their own destiny by the horns and kind of do do their own thing with it right to be masters of their own domain humans can that that's what humans can do um and that's kind of an interesting idea i mean that's development in sort of a different sort of framework right um than uh than just like the purely economic sense or even like the or even the uh the progressive capitalist sense there, there's something more there so that uh, is kind of a jumping off point for Gutierrez is, uh, is this like, you know, reconfiguration of what development might mean. At the beginning of this first section of this essay, Gutierrez says that this particular, you know, redefinition or redefining thinking of development as like a total process, um, it leads um, towards a, a different perspective. And he says, uh, this leads precisely to a change of perspective, which after certain additions and corrections, we would prefer to call liberation. So there you go. Um, this is uh, this is Gutierrez's move here, um, taking development and all of its problems and kind of reframing it and then just saying, well, actually, what we're interested in here is not development into a capitalist country or, you know, development into a country that uh, feeds the the core country as a you know, periphery country, but instead uh, liberation. And I think that's pretty interesting, right, because it's um, it's resituating, um, uh, you know, how Latin America or a, you know, a periphery country might think of itself in relationship to the, the, the imperial core, instead of being something that just like feeds it uh, cheap labor and like goods or, um, or, you know, natural resources or whatever. It's kind of like, uh, it's taking up a, a perspective of, of liberation of, of saying like, you know, we're actually going to do something different. Uh, it's an idea that there might be a, a sovereignty beyond uh, being like a sort of, uh, caught up in the capitalist economy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that more expanded idea um, of liberation is, I think it's worth sort of, I guess, uh, really zeroing in on how it is contrasting not only with like the most brazen kind of capitalism, but as you were saying, Matt, it's it's the, the even contrasting with that fuller version of capitalist development. And I think that is also a really interesting thing too, because um, so often in liberation theology, you get, I think today, a certain reduction of that vision to sort of like playing around with certain theological symbols or something like that. But what's really going on here is a, a confrontation with a real material process and, uh, you know, one that was, like I said, far more progressive than what we have on offer today. Like nobody really is imagining, um, development even as like ambitious now as they might have been in like you know brazil in the 50s and 60s for example and still that was kind of gutierrez's point of reference in some ways um it's also really striking how development today continues to sort of uh i guess dictate the way that countries are perceived so for example like in a country like cuba 
Um, I was just reading this book by a guy named uh, Henry Veltmeyer uh, called Human Development, and uh, it's all about Cuba in particular and its kind of role in that process. Um, there are all these development indexes that you can find, and the UN has a popular one. And it's wild because, like, Cuba's place on that index is always uh, kind of in flux. Um, in the 70s and 80s, it had, like, actually a pretty like high development score and then during the special period it went down and then now it kind of like hovers and fluctuates but it still ranks higher than lots of other global south countries but one thing that Veltmeyer points out is the way they calculate the development index it has to do with lots of different stuff like health and education things like that Um, but one of the big indicators is also per capita income and he was saying like if you remove that indicator in particular Cuba like shoots up the chart pretty quick Um, but because there's not a high per capita income, it pulls their development score way down. So it's kind of like Mm. a really strange indicator, right? Because it doesn't actually necessarily tell you much about how a society is or isn't developed if people have like an individual paycheck that is X amount of dollars or kind of relative to other paychecks, right? Um, So it's a kind of sense that like the way that we even talk about development now is really like, based in a, a fundamental way on that kind of economic logic. And I think what Gutierrez is really inviting us to do is say, why don't we just scrap that stuff? Like, <laughs> let's not have mm-hmm. these indicators that hinge on economic development and really see, like, what is it that a community wants and needs? What does it mean to be liberated from the kind of structures that keep people exploited and poor? And again, it's just, like, refreshing to see a theologian kind of have... I guess like the the literacy enough to be able to even ask that question in a particular way, which I feel like with a few exceptions is actually very rare nowadays. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me read this extra piece here from Gutierrez to kind of drive the whole point home. Um, so he says that developmentalism, right, the uh, the economic sense of the word, um, you know, about develop like uh, economic growth, the opening of a country to capitalism more efficiently or whatever. (laughs) That's what he's talking about here. (laughs) Developmentalism thus came to be synonymous with reformism and modernization. That is to say, synonymous with timid measures, really ineffective in the long run and counterproductive to achieving real transformation. The poor countries are becoming ever more clearly aware that their underdevelopment is only the byproduct of the development of other countries because of the kind of relationship which exists between the rich and the poor countries. Moreover, they are realizing that their own development will come about only with a struggle to break the domination of the rich countries. I like this piece here because it's kind of, you know, riffing off of what you are just saying a minute ago, that, like, um, development uh, in the capitalist sense and in, in the purely economic sense is, like, kind of giving a bait and switch, right? Like, because the, ideo- the ideological position here is that, like, economic development will make a country better in the sense that it might pull people out of poverty. It changes their consumption patterns and gives them all the great things that people in the core (laughs) have or something. But, but the, the bait and switch here is that, um, that it doesn't do that, right? It really just integrates people and um, countries, you know, along with those people into a system where they are underdeveloped on purpose and exploited. So that (laughs) the, the core, uh, can have, you know, the type of consumptive goods that uh, I guess people want. I, I mean, I think what's really interesting about this whole thing, um, especially what he says here about how it's, it's a, you know, it's about reformism and modernization. And like, that's true, but it's not the type of, it, it's, um, it's slouching towards the type of modernization that people like think of as like a universal Kantian good or something like a United Nations type of modernization. Like, that's what it wants to be, but the type of modernization it gives is, like, a modernized piece of the capitalist economy, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not like um, Haiti or Cuba or whatever will actually ever get to the same consumptive patterns of the United States because, like, that's fundamentally not the purpose of this particular type of um, economic system, right? That's, like, that's right. not the goal. It's also, um, like fundamentally impossible like geologically biologically like the we could not the the world could not sustain uh everyone on the planet consuming in the way that the u.s or europe or canada does like it's it's just not ever going to be feasible and that raises also really critical questions about like who gets to consume what and what are acceptable levels of consumption and of what and the like you said the bait and switch of developmentalism is like 
it's always sort of putting a, a bit of a carrot on a stick for a completely unrealizable goal. Yeah. You know, um, that observation there, I think is actually really important. This is sort of an aside. It's like a, a it's like a half turn, not a full turn to, to the side. <laughs> um, but like, you know, there, I, I guess what's interesting is that there's like a, a real confluence or resonance here you see with like uh, traditions, you know, like Catholic social thought or liberation theology that are really interested in, figuring out this piece about developmentalism and also um, people interested in like degrowth. Um, this is something that we've talked about off the podcast before, but like there are all these like wild, like Catholic social movements that are really down with the idea of degrowth because I think of this particular understanding of developmentalism and like how it's um, bad <laughs> in terms of like mm-hmm. consumption. Okay. I don't know. Um, it's a great thesis for another episode maybe, but I'm just pointing it out here because I think it's interesting um, that there's like, you know, this this way of economic thinking um, within, like, uh, liberation theology, and I think Catholic social teaching broadly, uh, it ends up kind of uh, creating space for the idea of, like, a, a, some really interesting ecological thought that, like, people on the left, I think, are even sort of uh, a little bit nervous about these days. Mm-hmm. So. In this in this way, and maybe in this way only, Catholic social teaching is a little bit ahead of the curve, and I think that's cool. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Um, I mean, we'll talk about that more for sure when we talk about Leonardo Boff at the end, because um, he is very big on that point in particular. But I think it's true that there is something, even in Catholic social teaching more broadly, that is always brushing up against this in an uncomfortable way. Um, it's interesting because in Gutierrez's book, he goes through a bit of a like kind of short history of the development of Catholic thought on development <laughs> to have a, a bad phrase. Um, he talks about how there's sort of some openings during Vatican II, which was happening in the 60s. Um, there's also some uh, developments that you see going on in um, papal thinking. So there's a big encyclical Popularum Progressio that came out that has uh it's basically an encyclical on development and one of the headings in it is uh development is a new name for peace which is where the organization that i work for development and peace got its name so there's this kind of like slow uh recognition on the part of the church that it, it wants to be part of these conversations but it's always uneasy too like uh on the one hand the church has this kind of theory of development what it ends up calling integral human development but on the other hand, its own economic thought bristles against the sort of capitalist reformism that you get in other development theories. So what you have in Gutierrez, I think, is this kind of attempt to radicalize that moment and to like spy a contradiction in what's happening in the magisterial thought and sort of say, OK, the church has these kind of ethical convictions or like these eschatological horizons and the the world that we live in is pushing a certain developmental vision and like. Gutierrez just wants to say these things at a certain point kind of break off, you know, like you, you, you can maybe go a ways with them together for a bit, but at a certain point you have to choose, do you want to be liberated or you do want to be kind of stuck in the cycle mm-hmm. of underdevelopment? I think that is like such a unique contribution that Gutierrez makes. Yeah, for sure. It's a good one. Um, and pretty illuminating. I mean, again, another moment where like, reading theology and uh, economics together, I think actually is very productive. Um, Gets you somewhere new. And that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that switch then from like, you know, do you want to be stuck in underdevelopment or do you want to be liberated? That's a a pretty important piece of this here. Right. So Gutierrez, he kicks uh, development to the side and says, instead, we should be talking about liberation and uh, that's cool. I love talking about liberation. It's one of my favorite things. I would love to be liberated from a lot of things um, <laughs> more more than I realize, probably. <laughs> um, but I think this kind of gets to a really interesting theme in Gutierrez and a theme that comes out like every which way in socialist writing. Um, socialists, they're always talking about, okay, well, socialists are always talking about economics, for sure, first of all. But like, all of the socialists that are like uh, postmodern, post-Marx, people interested in like psychoanalysis, they're always talking about one thing. And that thing is how do you create a new type of subjectivity that's like revolutionary? How do you like, um, you, you know, like capitalism is bad enough um, on the outside, but like how do you like get rid of the capitalism that lives inside your brain that tells you mm-hmm. that like work is really important and good <laughs> or whatever? Um, how do you 
kick the boss out of your head, I think is the question um, that a lot of post-Marxists that were really interested in. Lots of French guys for sure. Um, you also hear this kind of thing from, um, you know, other types of people too, like Che Guevara, right? He um, he said, um, you know, that, that to, to build socialism, we have to become like a, a new type of person, right? And that Cuba is, a, is about building that new type of person. Um, that's socialist and uh, that can kind of engage in that process in in ways that, uh, you know, their subjectivity is liberated from capitalist production and some cool ideas there for sure. Um, so great. Che Guevara is talking about it. All these great French post-Marxist guys are talking about it. But another place you hear it is in liberation theology. And I think that liberation theology, again, might have something like unique to contribute here. And I uh, will talk about it here. So this is what Gutierrez says about this particular idea. He says, to conceive of history as a process of human liberation is to consider freedom as a historical conquest. It's to discover that the step from an abstract to a real freedom is not taken without a struggle against all the forces that oppress humankind, a struggle full of pitfalls, detours, and temptations to run away. The goal is not only better living conditions, a radical change of structure, a social revolution. It's much more, the continuous creation, never-ending, of a new way to be human, a permanent cultural revolution. Maybe uh, a <laughs> a problematic uh, phrase at the end, but no big deal. <laughs> that's, a, that's a conversation for a different time. Um, but I think this is this is interesting, though, right? Because this is kind of the same the same question about subjectivity. How do you become a person who can live their life in a way that is like, you know, where, where the boss is no longer in your head, where you're no longer feeling anxious about like, um, have you done enough work today or, or whatever, where you're not self-policing about your own productivity? Um so I think that's that's a cool a cool note. But I think there's something really interesting here because liberation theology I think is like uniquely situated in this conversation to actually deliver on that new subjectivity. Like Marxists are always talking about this. And and even like you can see it really ham-fistedly in like I don't know, uh the Soviet Union creating like a Soviet Santa Claus or something, right? <laughs> Cuz I mean it's kind of like that. Um how do we how do we kind of become people that don't want the capitalist Santa Claus but want the different Santa Claus or, or whatever? How, you know, how do we create revolutionary values? And and that has been like um an extremely fraught piece of socialist history of, you know, creating socialist art and um, repressing some types of art and, you know, repressing some types of other cultural behaviors and, and so on. But I think that uh, what's interesting about liberation the theology kind of in this conversation here is that it kind of can make good on some of the, those promises about a, a new subjectivity or, or uh, you know, a, a new idea about what it means to be human. Because Christianity already has this like whole set of you know, existing ideas that are, you know, kind of in the canon lo loosely or um, concretely um, that it can recall and repurpose, you know, I mean, and I think our podcast is a great example of like how creative you can do with that, like St. Francis or something or the church in Acts or, you know, um, all of the prophets from, you know, Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these people who are always talking about um, people oppressing kids and widows and stuff. There's all kinds of stuff like within Christianity that you can you can grab and kind of use to this end. Um, towards this new subjectivity. I don't, I don't know. It makes me think that, like, we're always talking about the the ways that, like, Christians can be better Christians if they paid more attention to economics and kind of thought about Marxism more concretely. But I think that this is maybe what Christianity actually does have to offer, is that there's sort of, like, um, a, a way that it's... it's um, you can you can use Christianity to, to find some new ways through these, like, old questions about, like, how do we free ourselves from thinking in really particular ways that are capitalist and ultimately harmful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the uh, the blessing and curse of something like Christianity, right? Is that it the the whole point of it is to turn you into something else, and sometimes that something else is monstrous, right? Like uh, colonizers and abusers and so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's important to kind of recognize that, but it's also like the kind of thing that could turn you into Ernesto Cardinal or Gustavo Gutierrez or, you know, uh, I don't know, whoever else, um, <laughs> Elsa Tamez, all, all these different kinds of people, right? Uh, Rigoberto Menchu, like there's this kind of, um, uh, way that faith traditions, faith communities and so on. We've talked about this on the show too, but they, they sort of form like a big machine, a big, uh, a big car wash that you go through and you, you turn <laughs> into to something else at the end of it. Um, and I think that is, uh, both like, a, a moment of like radical possibility, creativity and so on. And like, 
a lot of caution and trepidation because you can <laughs> you can really mess yourself and others up. Uh, but there's something about it that is impressive. And I don't think like, you know, it's important to avoid maybe trying to like talk in a way that sets up a sort of Christian supremacy argument here. Right. I don't need to say like, OK, yeah, it's not like Christianity only is the only thing that can do this, but it does do this or it can and has done it. And uh, I think there's something for those of us that are participating in that tradition to kind of be like, okay, you know, while well, I'm stuck in this thing or it's doing stuff to me, how can I sort of repurpose it? You know what's funny is like, I feel like in the mid-2000s, do you remember there was this trend of kind of um, Christians reading continental philosophy, postmodern philosophers, and the big insight was like, we're all being formed in all these different ways. Like there are these cultural liturgies. I don't know. Do you remember that sort of? Yeah. Meme. For sure. Yeah. People love to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so there's all these books about, like, you go to the shopping mall, and guess what? The shopping mall is basically a church, and it's turning you into a certain kind of person, <laughs> and, like, the liturgy is an alternative way of forming you, right? But the the way that they would talk about it back then was sort of always forming you in a way that kind of protects your piety or, like, um, you know, makes you resistant to some parts of the world, but also kind of closes you off to, like, actually doing something about it <laughs> in a really weird way. Um, and what's cool about liberation theology and what Gutierrez is really putting forward in this book is that like it can uh, liberate us to certainly like counter those other formative kinds of things, but in such a way that like we're being formed to be the agent of change rather than like, you know, the 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 peer community in our church community or, or whatever that might be. So I think that's also maybe a good word for Christians to hear these days to sort of you know, reach back into liberation theology and see how we might be formed in a different way. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think that's actually the most like um, maybe undiscussed piece that's like missing from the deconstruction conversation. This is a whole nother angle maybe that, I don't know, maybe I'll regret talking about in two seconds. But, <laughs> um, you know, people are always talking about like uh, deconstructing and, um, you know, how do you kind of like deprogram yourself from weird evangelical beliefs and, you know, you're from people are familiar with this conversation. I probably don't need to lay it all out exactly. <laughs> but like, I think that this is, that this is an interesting inter intervention though, because it's like those things that you, because you've been formed by Christianity in like X, Y, and Z ways. And like, you should definitely take the time to like deprogram your brain or whatever, but like fundamentally you are shaped by those things. And I don't know, at least in my own life, it's been true that like, there's not a lot I can do about those things. <laughs> Like, uh, I can definitely think about them and be reflective, but like fundamentally they're still there and um, being able to repurpose them and like hack them so that like maybe they're about liberation um, rather than about like uh, Bible quizzing or something. It's been a helpful, a helpful vertice in like understanding uh, how to take a step back from like the more harmful types of Christianity. It's the, it's the, uh, the training wheels you need to get... <laughs> <laughs> to, to a better and healthier life, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, maybe to sort of bring it full circle here, what is also very good about Gutierrez in this context is um, he provides a good antidote to that sort of tendency to retreat that you can get in, let's face it, bourgeois Christian <laughs> ways of talking. Um, and I think what Gutierrez is, is doing, the antidote that he provides is like, yeah, religion can kind of form you to inculcate new values, um, the kinds of things you'd need in a cooperative society, but also like it's dialectical. Like you can't become that new person without that new society either. And that is why he wants to sort of intervene in this conversation around development, right? If it was just as simple as like you can go to church and sort of that's all you really need, that's all the formative apparatus you need in order to be a revolutionary, well, that would be simple enough. But Gutierrez doesn't think that. Like, he goes out of his way in this book in so many places to even explicitly name that the kind of revolution that they need is a socialist one, right? Like it has to be a change in the means of production. It has to be a liberation out of capitalist kinds of relationships. And that's also the sort of thing that you need for a permanent cultural revolution, right? You can't have that without kind of changing those material conditions. And I think that's like the key reason that I always go back to liberation theology, because it, it, it always insists on pulling theology back to the ground in that way. Well, let's um, let's pull this chapter to the ground. No, well, let's just finish <laughs> up this chapter and like and we'll move on with our lives. Um, so at the end, uh, this conversation kind of gets wrapped up for Gutierrez um, with like these like 
three levels of liberation that he kind of comes to. So, I mean, he talks about liberation in a lot of different senses with regards to development and, um, and I think, and religion more broadly. So these are the three that he kind of settles on at the end. And he, these are like the, um, the three, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, of a metaphor and I'm failing. Uh, these are the three vertices of liberation uh, that we can kind of think about in terms of, uh, of, of development or like kind of getting out of the, um, the bad capitalist system that we're in. So the first one is, uh, I think, probably the most fundamental, right? Liberation expresses the aspirations of oppressed people and social classes, emphasizing the conflictual aspect of the economic, social, political process that puts them at odds with wealthy nations and oppressive classes. So right off the bat here, liberation means like the actual liberation, like the actual liberation from capitalism, right? So this is exactly what you just said. This is the socialist revolution. Like that's exactly what he's talking about here. The second one is this. Liberation can be applied to an understanding of history. Humankind is seen as assuming a conscious responsibility for its own destiny. So this again here is like um, it's it's kind of the idea of like liberating yourself from the idea that you have to be a particular type of economy or something that you have to fit into the world system in, in X, Y or Z way. Um, it's it's recognizing that uh, humans have like agency um, and that they can push up against the uh, the flows of capital if they wanted to. And then finally, um, he says this, that the word liberation allows for another approach leading to the biblical sources which inspire the presence and action of humankind in history. In the Bible, Christ is presented as the one who brings us liberation. So this is talking about that subjectivity of being a type of uh, person who's formed by Christianity, but um, you know, it's a specific type of Christianity, not one that is uh, hinging on that uh, colonialist history or um, any of the bad stuff, though that's all kind of lurking in the background always. Um, but it's uh, about the, the liberatory Christianity that you might find in the Bible and uh, the new subjectivity that might come with it. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. Uh, Gutierrez is intervening in this development conversation that's going on in Latin America and elsewhere and making it clear where he stands, right? He doesn't really want to go along with the reformist development stuff coming out of the, the, in, the kind of like international institutions, um, he's not just going to accept the reformist piece. He he wants more, right? Um, by the way, if you've never read this book and you're like a Christian interested in socialism, it's a really good place to go. I think it's not without its flaws. It is dated for sure in many ways. But uh, man, I mean, it's a theologian who talks about all kinds of stuff. Socialism, capitalism, development, uh, Cuba, it's all in there. You should check it out for sure. Uh, but that key is that liberation becomes the the substitute word for development or the thing you want instead of development, which I think is a really unique and inspiring thing. Um, also, one cool piece of trivia about Gustavo Gutierrez that I learned actually kind of recently. Um, he was a schoolmate of a the son of a guy named uh, Jose Carlos Maria de Guay, who was... Um, I'm mispronouncing his name because I'm very bad at Spanish, but he was a, a Peruvian communist, like probably the most influential communist writer in the history of Peru. And uh, man, when I discovered that, it was a huge surprise to me <laughs> that Gutierrez was so close to that kind of movement, such that he was like in a class with that guy's kid. Um, and he quotes uh, Marietta Gui all over the place in this book. So it's uh, anyway, just like interesting too to be like, here's a theologian who was formed by those relationships from before the time he was like able to think about theology. That's pretty cool. That's some great trivia. I'm going to tell my friends about that one. <laughs> They're going to love it. They're going to love it right after you ask them what their sacramental symbol might be. <laughs> yeah, they really will. <laughs> All right. So Gutierrez wrote this book a long time ago, many decades ago now. Um, and a lot has happened in development since, like I said, neoliberalism happened. Um, capitalism went into overdrive, even the progressive forms of development uh, went down, went away. Uh, very hard to have a conversation about them now. Um, and into the 90s, there was kind of a renewed conversation about what became called sustainable development, which is a complicated phrase um, for reasons that we'll understand in just a minute. But that has become kind of the, the watchword. So the United Nations, every once in a while, puts out these things called Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. Um, we usually don't meet them, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Uh, but they're aspirational. And those goals do tend to be a little progressive uh, in some, some cases. 
Um, notably, the goals, they typically have to do with reducing poverty or inequality, things like that, and there's kind of measurables and so on. But uh, the, what they don't do is talk about how to change the economy, right? That's always the fundamental limitation. And everything Gutierrez says about development here continues to apply to those sort of aspirational goals. Um, it's kind of interesting once you, you can read the SDGs, and I think you should. It's like the framework that most international NGOs use to, to talk. Um, so it's good to kind of know how people think about it. But, uh, and like I said, some of them are like not bad. Like it would be good if we met them and they're, they're good ideas. We should do them, uh, most of them. But uh, what's really fascinating is they do sort of come up short always on this political economy question because that's the United Nations. <laughs> it's just kind of how it goes. So uh, liberation theology has continued to follow these trends and issues in development and has, you know, had other things to say. So Gutierrez is like one voice among tons of other voices. And uh, there have been a ton of others uh, continuing to follow it. So one is Leonardo Boff. Uh, again, you know him, you love him. We talk about him on the show quite a lot. Uh, famous friend of G's Magazine, Leonardo Boff. Um, he has talked a lot about development, um, even in the last like few decades. And uh, he talks a lot about like the COP meetings at the UN and things like that. So I thought I'd just pull out one great blog post that he wrote over 10 years ago now called uh, Sustainable Development, a Critique of the Standard Model. It is very short. You can read the whole thing. But I thought it'd be good maybe just to sort of pick out one other liberation theologian writing something a little more contemporary to kind of see where this went. So uh, I'm going to read just the very beginning piece, and then we can parse it out here together. So he says, when we speak here of development, we're not talking about just any development, but of the one that actually exists, that is, of the industrialist, capitalist, consumerist development. It's anthropocentric, contradictory, and wrong. And he explains each of those things. So I thought we could take them one by one here um, and kind of talk them through. Uh, I don't know. Does that sound good to you, Matt? Talking them through Sounds that great. way. I love okay. talking things through. I know you do. I thought it was going to be an easy ask. And I was right. So uh, we'll start with the anthropocentric side. So again, he's critiquing the, the, the very idea of sustainable development and kind of what that could mean. So he says, it's anthropocentric because it is centered only on the human being, as if the greater community of life, the flora, fauna, and other living organisms that also need the biosphere and equally demand sustainability did not exist. Um, which I think is a pretty cool thing for a theologian to say right off the bat, right? That one yeah. problem with sustainable development is that it's really just talking about human life, and that's not sufficient. Totally, yeah. I mean, man, Boff is so good at this, though. He recognizes... Um not only ecologically how this is true, I mean, in his other books for sure, right? But he also recognizes, like, this, like, deeper spiritual understanding that, like, anthropocentrism is, like, a, it's a spiritual problem, right? Just as much as it is an ecological problem that uh, if you can only think of yourself as creation, everything else is just sort of, like, decoration, uh, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> you're you're, uh, you're uh, giving the rest of creation sort of a, a bad rap. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, I should have said, too, by way of introduction, so maybe this is obvious, but maybe not. Sustainable development, the the addition of that adjective is to say it's a kind of environmentally conscious piece, but it's also a socially kind of, like, conscious piece. The idea being that they want the development itself to be sustainable, like it can, you know, hold on, like it's not going to go away, that the gains made will stay gains not regress, and then secondly, that it's environmentally sustainable as well. So anyway, that's why he's sort of picking out the environment piece. Yeah. You know, sorry, before you go on, I just want to say, uh, so I was rereading Cry of the Earth, Cry of the Poor, Leonardo's big book about ecology. I mean, he has a few of them, actually, but that's one of them. And um, I, we talked about it on the podcast a while ago, but I just want to reemphasize how cool a book it is. And um, there's my favorite part, though, is that it does center sort of an ecological ethics that is non-anthropocentric around St. Francis. And I don't know, it had a bit, pretty big impact on me. Been thinking about bugs a lot lately. <laughs> I want to, I'm out there feeding the birds. Um, but uh, anyways, it's a cool book. Uh, there's a cool ethic there that I think is really important. Um, anthropocentrism is a um, definitely like a byproduct of Christianity in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, definitely should consider how that's bad in our lives. <laughs> that's right. And uh, then you can also learn a lot about bugs. Wouldn't that be great? Um, That'd be great. They're your friends. They like talking to you if you listen closely. 
I don't like putting my face next to bugs, though, so (laughs) I'm not cool about that part, but uh, it's great. A lot of great stuff in there. The biggest problem is having to get them close enough to your ear that you can hear them speak. I don't like that. I don't like bugs in my ears. I do not like that at all. No. No, 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 no. All right. So sustainable development. It's anthropocentric. He doesn't like that. The second piece is it's contradictory. He says it's contradictory because development and sustainability obey opposing logics. The development now in existence is linear and increasing. The sustainability category, to the contrary, comes from the sciences of life and ecology, whose logic is circular and inclusive. Um, He talks at length about these two things more. But the basic point, right, is that capitalism is on this upward arrow, trending upward in a linear way. That's the ideal, that growth is, is the watchword. And sustainability doesn't work that way, right? It works in terms of cycles, in terms of uh, reusability, recycling, kind of putting things back into the metabolism of the earth. So sustainable development is already a a contradiction in terms. How's that one strike you, Matt? It's great. As it turns out, we live on a finite earth. We should figure that out. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah, I know. Capitalists, they don't want to believe it. They've got their head buried in the sand. Uh, They think that... uh, This earth, it'll go on forever, but it won't. It won't. Uh, And that leads us to the third point. It is anthropocentric, contradictory, and wrong. He says uh, it's wrong because it asserts that poverty is the cause of ecological degradation. And I like this point a lot. Mm. Uh, Thus, the lesser the poverty, the more sustainable development would be with less degradation. This is incorrect. By critically analyzing the real causes of poverty and the degradation of nature, one can see that they result primarily, if not exclusively, from the type of development now in existence. That kind of development is what produces the degradation because it degrades nature, pays low salaries, and thus generates poverty. And I really like that note that uh, there is a really weird link between basically blaming poor countries for, uh, you know, ruining the environment and also this kind of bizarre, like, conflation with, uh, oh, if we could just kind of raise ourselves out of poverty, we would also kind of have a more sustainable life, which, like, everything in the history of capitalism has shown exactly the opposite, right? It gets worse before it gets better. If it ever gets better, it hasn't yet. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, you see this rhetoric from people like, uh, I think we talked about it on the show a long time ago. Um, You know, John Kerry was, like, in Africa recently talking to a bunch of countries about how, like, they need to do their part to fight climate change, even though they cause, like, you know, 1% of emissions or something. Like, there's this kind of, like, finger-wagging that you get against poor people um, when uh, the the kind of links or assumptions people are making are just flat-out wrong, especially between poverty development and uh, sustainability. Yeah, it's a, it's a really bonkers assumption because it's uh, demonstrably untrue. I don't know. Like... It's not poverty that, that causes the degradation of nature. It's like consumption, man. It's like uh, it's seeing that there is like a, a global climate catastrophe coming. And then your solution is like, well, everyone just needs to buy a different type of car. That's what causes mm-hmm. it. Right. The development that necessitates like out of control consumption. Uh, just a, I, I don't know. Buff is right. <laughs> poverty is not <laughs> the problem. It's like rich people thinking they can buy their way out of, uh, of an existential crisis. Exactly. So here's how Buff closes. In conclusion, the leading model of development that calls itself sustainable is pure rhetoric. It advocates the production of less carbon, utilization of alternative energies, strengthening of degraded regions, and the creation of better means of waste disposal. But let's be clear. All this is dependent on not impairing profits and not reducing competition. The use of the expression sustainable development has an important political meaning, the necessary change of the economic paradigm if we want a real sustainability. Within the present one, sustainability is either localized or non-existent. And I think that is the key, right? That it's about capitalism at the end of the day. Uh, As long as capitalism is a fundamental and unchallengeable feature of development, which it is all the way up to the United Nations, um, it is just always going to thwart all the other actually good and very important things that some uh, efforts at development understand, right? Like the improvement of women's health and rights, the... uh, Uh, kind of reparations that need to be made um, in the world for climate change to ever kind of make sense or or be addressed uh, on a global scale, right? Like all these kinds of things you see in the sustainable development goals, education, access to healthcare, uh, rights for all kinds of folks. um, All that stuff is contingent ultimately on economic security, which uh, capitalism can't provide, right? Uh, in In a healthy way. 
So all that to say, like liberation theology, I think is great because like even up through the uh, the 21st century, you have people like Boff who are following the trends in development, which let's be honest, most of us don't in the global north because we don't have to. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't change our entire economy, uh, you know, over the course of like 10 years, every every decade or so. Um, and I think it's really impressive that liberation theologians are basically like trying to spell it out for the rest of us and <laughs> trying to like take the time to explain what all this stuff means and like why it's not sufficient. And, you know, on the one hand, it's complicated. There's a lot of different things going on. But on the other hand, it does just kind of come down to like, do we want to continue uh, with capitalism or do we want to find some alternatives via liberation? I think that is such a good and important word, um, even as everybody else is talking about development uh, around me <laughs> all the time, but also uh, in the world, right? In these big kind of uh, global fora and so on. We need we need to talk about liberation. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you subscribe at the $2 level, you get uh, an invite to our very cool, very exclusive Discord chat. Um, where we're always talking about recipes and the woke agenda. We love the woke agenda. The woke agenda is great. We love it. We're always talking about it and embracing it. And uh, we love these M&Ms out there. Um, we love them. I think they should keep the shoes. <laughs> I want them. <laughs> I want them to have shoes for sure. Um, but not, but uh, sustainable shoes, please. Green, green M&M sustainable shoes. All right. Um, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. I feel like I missed something when I started talking about M&Ms, but it's too late now. It's already over. But we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.